You're listening to Kingdom Empire and Plus Ultra, Conversations on the History of Portugal and Spain, 1415 to 1898. A podcast series brought to you by HistoryHub.ie and UCD School of History. We're speaking today with Dr. Stephanie Kavanagh. Dr. Kavanagh is a historian of the early modern Spanish Empire, focusing on conversion, religious cultures and the social and legal histories of 16th century Castile. She earned her PhD in the history of the University of Toronto in 2016. She is currently a postdoctoral fellow in the Early Modern Conversions Project at McGill University in Montreal, and she has recently been appointed as a Sir John Elliott Junior Research Fellow in Spanish History at Oxford University. Her article, Litigating for Liberty, Enslaved Morisco Children in 16th Century Valladolid, was published in the winter 2017 edition of Renaissance Quarterly. Her book project, under revision, is The Morisco Problem and the Politics of Conversion in Early Modern Spain. She analyses the gender dimensions of Morisco legal agency in her article, in Defence of Community, Morisca Women in 16th Century Valladolid, which will appear in the forthcoming edited collection Women in Community in Medieval and Early Modern Iberia, published by the University of Nebraska Press. Dr. Kavanagh, Stephanie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. So, Stephanie, we are in fact discussing Moriscos today, um, Moriscos in the 16th century Spain, and the problem of Morisco conversion. That is to say, we're going to be talking about what true conversion of a Morisco was, um, the links between belief and practice, and relationships with the old Spanish Christian society. Now, your work um, engages with historical ideas of difference and belonging, particularly in, as we said, relation to Moriscos, that is, Spanish Muslims forcibly converted to Christianity in early modern Spain. Uh, Now, in this podcast series, we've briefly touched on this topic, um, as well as Spanish attempts to compel both Muslim and Jewish communities to convert to Catholicism in the 15th and 16th centuries, But we haven't discussed it in much detail up to now, which is why I'm very happy to do this podcast finally. Uh, So for the benefit of listeners uh, who might not be overly familiar with the topic itself, can you provide a brief overview uh, of Spain's relationship with Islam and how it came to have such a significant Muslim population before the 16th century? Yes. And to begin, we'd actually have to go back very briefly to the 8th century. Um, so in the year 711, uh, the Iberian Peninsula was invaded and largely conquered over the next decade by the Umayyad Caliphate, a large Islamic empire that stretched across the southern Mediterranean. While the northern regions held out against conquerors, most of the Iberian Peninsula fell under the Islamic political control of successive emirates. So over the next few centuries, Christian and Muslim rulers fought intermittently for political control. Um, the series of Christian conquests over Iberian territories during the Middle Ages is what's commonly referred to as the Reconquest or the Reconquista of Spain. And because it's important context for what we're discussing today, I wanted to just quickly signal that how problematic of a term this is. The idea of Reconquista was a product of the Spanish Catholic claim to a pre-existing Spanish Catholic nation. And it glosses over the complexity of hundreds of years of there being both Muslims and Christians living there and Muslims and Christian ruled kingdoms in the Iberian Peninsula between the years 711 and 1492. And that's over 700 years of Islamic societies um, and Islamic political control in the peninsula. So I think for us now to consider Muslims to be interlopers in Iberia after such a long time would really require us to challenge accepted historical and current political narratives, for example, about the place of European settlers and their descendants in the Americas today. Now, I know it's difficult to generalize, um, but how were day-to-day relations between the different religious communities and cities with large Muslim communities such as uh, Cordoba, Seville and Granada, just to name a few? 
While the medieval Iberian kingdoms have long been characterized by historians as a place and a time of coexistence between Christians, Muslims, and Jews, um, there were Christians and Jewish minorities living in Muslim territories and Muslim and Jewish minorities living in Christian rural territories. And in Spanish, this coexistence is called convivencia. It included elements of tolerance and intolerance. Um, Cities like Cordoba and Seville came under Christian rule in the 13th century, and Granada, both the city and the kingdom, remained under Muslim rule until the conquest of 1492. And during the medieval era, Christians and Jews living in Islamic territories were protected people who paid special taxes under the Dhimmi system. And Muslims and Jews living in Christian ruled lands also received special protections and some levels of communal autonomy. These religious minorities were then segregated into Jewish and Muslim quarters in many places by royal order in the early 15th century. The late Middle Ages saw increasing religious violence that led to the forced baptisms of Iberian Jews, um, notably beginning with the 1391 pogroms in Seville, and the conversion of the Muslims beginning in 1502, which we'll discuss, um, creating convert populations known as Judeo-conversos and Moriscos, respectively. Um, I would note, too, that this religious pluralism was a major difference between Iberian and other European kingdoms in the medieval and early modern eras. So outside of what are now Portugal and Spain, there were some major European cities with Jewish minorities, um, including Prague, Vienna, and Amsterdam. And meanwhile, aside from the Islamic Ottoman Empire, the majority of Muslims in Europe lived in the, the Iberian Peninsula. And those Muslims living in Christian rural territories were known as Mudejars. Do we have estimates on the size of Spain's uh, Muslim community by the late 15th century? Well, there are some estimates, certainly, of the Muslim populations of various regions of Spain. Um, in L.P. Harvey's book, Islamic Spain, 1250 to 1500, he discusses some of these in tandem and overall proposes a figure of one in six as an average for the ratio between Muslims and Christians during this era. Um, I would want to point out some inconsistencies here, though. It's really tricky to sort out historical population figures for a, a lot of reasons, as you're familiar, um, including spotty documentation, inconsistent record keeping, um, population movement, for example. And for tax purposes, some recorded figures kept track of citizen heads of households, so men and some widows, um, but not people in total. So for the era after the forced conversions, who counted as a morisco or who passed as not a morisco or could avoid registration would also um, impact our grasp of overall figures. Um, what I would say about population is that it's especially important to know that um, Muslim and then Morisco populations were really regionally distinct, with overall higher and denser numbers in Aragon than in Castile. So to paint a general, larger kind of scale picture, rural Muslim-turned-Morisco populations dominated in regions of the Crown of Aragon, um, with Muslims forming the majority in some areas in the Kingdom of Valencia. In her book, Guardians of Islam, Catherine Miller notes that Muslims formed approximately one-fifth of the population in 15th century Aragon. And in some places, they actually formed the majority of some towns. And meanwhile, um, they more generally formed small and mostly urban minority communities in the crown of Castile, which is the region that I, that I study. So, for example, in my research on the northwest Castilian city of Baidolid, um, a 1506 census list shows 194 Morisco households in the former Muslim quarter. This is just four years after their forced baptism in 1502. So what we have here and in many other cities like it is a small minority community incorporated into one parish in the, in the middle of the city. And then jumping ahead by a century, the population estimate for the Moriscos expelled from the Spanish kingdoms in the early 17th century is um, 300,000 or perhaps a little higher. So in 1499 then, the Muslim population of Granada um, rebelled against authorities in response to forced conversion. And this became known as the rebellion of the Alpujarras, which lasted until 1501 when it was uh, put down. How did this change the relationship between the Castilian crown and its Muslim population? 
Right. So in 1492, the Nazareth Sultanate of Granada, the last Iberian Muslim state, was conquered by the Catholic monarchs, um, Isabel I of Castile and Fernand II of Aragon. And this land was annexed into the crown of Castile. And the fall of Granada in 1492 marked the end of Islamic political control in Iberia, but was not the end of Islamic Spain. Muslim populations continued to exist legally across the peninsula. Even the conquered Granadan um, Muslims were granted freedom to practice Islam. This was actually guaranteed in their capitulation treaties. So despite this promised religious freedom, tensions soon escalated in the face of repressive policies and increased evangelization efforts, which all aimed at the conversion of the Granadan uh, Muslims. These pressures led to a Muslim revolt, which turned into a war, as you mentioned, fought between 1499 and 1501. This is known as the War of the Alpujarras because the fighting was centered in the Alpujarras mountain range, southeast of the city of Granada. And royal forces eventually defeated the Muslim rebels, and the revolt then was considered a violation of those 1492 capitulation treaties. This is what undid the legal freedom to practice Islam. So consequently, on February 12, 1502, the Catholic monarchs ordered the Muslims of the entire crown of Castile to choose between expulsion to North Africa and conversion to Catholicism. The vast majority had no real choice other than baptism. Zones of departure were extremely limited. Anybody who was going to try to leave was prohibited from taking their valuable goods with them. Um, this was also combined with the hardships of leaving home and family separation. Um, Pre-adolescent children would have had to have been left behind in Spain. So for all of these impediments, the 1502 order of expulsion is really seen as basically a forced religious conversion. This series of events, rebellion, war, and coerced religious conversions, absolutely changed the relationship between the crown and its Muslim population drastically, um, primarily because it created this convert population of nominal Catholics called New Christians, who upon baptism came under the jurisdiction of the Spanish Inquisition. So Muslims living in the crown of Aragon, which was the kingdoms of Aragon and Valencia and the Principality of Catalonia, were similarly forcibly converted to Catholicism during and after the Germania's revolts. Um, basically, after 1526, the entire population of the Spanish kingdoms was officially nominally Catholic, but then included these new Christian populations of both Jewish and Muslim descent who continued to be identified as religiously different. Um, your listeners may have heard of the concept of limpieza de sangre, or blood purity, and purity of blood statues distinguished these new Christian converts and their descendants from Catholics who had no known Jewish or Muslim ancestry. These people were called old Christians. And limpieza, or purity, was an important concept in the late medieval and early modern Spanish kingdoms. It became a requirement for many um, judicial and government offices. It was central to contemporary notions of honor. The first limpieza statutes were implemented in Toledo in 1449 to bar Judeo-conversos from public office. Um, in, this, in this system, a person's purity or impurity, in scare quotes, um, could be verified through an investigation into their genealogical inheritance, usually by the Spanish Inquisition. And in both official expectation and in self-presentation, limpieza was really an idealized concept, but still many religious and lay institutions came to require um, proof of their members of purity. And so the requirements of limpieza de sangre were eventually applied to the case of the moriscos. So the word morisco then? Um, it begins to appear in Spanish from about the early 16th century. I, um, am I right? Um, what exactly does it mean? Right. So these mudejars, again, Muslims living under Christian rule, became baptized new Christians. And they they do have many names kind of applied to them in the record. They were commonly called in Castilian Spanish, um, nuevos convertidos de moros. So newly converted Moors or newly converted from Islam. Um, 
sometimes you find the word antiguos mudejars, so former Muslims living under Christian rule. And then, of course, this word morisco. Um, morisco could mean Moorish in the medieval era. It could be used as a pejorative. Um, and it basically came to commonly refer to these new converts of, of Islamic um, uh, ancestry over the course of the 16th century. Um, other historians have also noted that this Nuevos Convertidos de Moros, newly converted designation, was much more common, especially in the earlier sources, with Morisco or Morisca becoming um, even more common over the course of the 16th century. And I, I do find that in my archival experience. I do find, however, the word Morisco throw all of my primary sources for the 16th century. I use it in my writing, but I would want to also just note that I do agree with scholars who point out that if used without critical analysis of what the term means, the word morisco can homogenize. It can erase, erase differences, um, regional, cultural, and legal differences between many peoples and communities to whom this word was applied. And part of my doctoral research and, and now my book aims to illuminate those differences, to explain the historical processes of identification and status claiming in the case of the Moriscos of Castile. You say that there were certain criteria to determine one's uh, Morisco status and that these were diverse and often uh, quite intrusive. Can you outline what some of these um, criteria might have been? For sure. And I'd begin by emphasizing that Morisco identities and experiences were really diverse and fluid and often negotiated. So it's important to note here that Moriscos were not a homogenous cultural unit. Morisco populations themselves were regionally distinct from one another and communities underwent um, large amounts of social and religious changes throughout the 16th century. The kinds of things that would distinguish and identify Moriscos in terms of their status could include their regional provenance, um, their ancestry, the kinds of legal privileges they may have inherited, and also evidence of their religious sincerity. So for some examples, in the early 17th century, um, Moriscos appealed for exemption from the order commanding their general expulsion from the kingdoms on account of the kinds of legal statuses that they may have inherited. Some premise these claims on long-term local belonging. So in Valladolid, old Moriscos, antiguos mudejars of the Barrio de Santa Maria in this case, claimed exemption from the expulsion on account of their indigeneity and their local ancestry. And to corroborate this claim, they presented a writ stating that their ancestry in the city could be traced back more than 800 years. In this case, Castilian Morisco communities made these kinds of claims to distinguish themselves from the descendants of Granada and deportees resettled in Castile decades earlier. Others presented evidence of their ancient lineages or of honorable legal identities that they may have inherited from forefathers who converted before conquest or decree. That's before the 1492 conquest or the 1502 decree commanding their, their uh, baptism. A considerable number of Granada and Morisco individuals asserted and litigated to protect these old Christian statuses. And their legal action created an archived paper trail demonstrating these family legacies of political loyalty or hereditary entitlements to the privileges customarily only held by old Christians. Claims of old Christian status were also made on the basis of corporate belonging. So, for example, the Moriscos of Hornachos, which was a sizable village in Extremadura, and those in the five towns of the Campo de Calatrava in La Mancha um, held collective and hereditary privileges granted to them by the crown generations earlier. During the final expulsion, there were also investigations to determine the religious sincerity of Moriscos who were publicly known to be good Christians, as evidenced by witness testimony. And some of these good Christian Moriscos had even passed as old Christians before the proclamation of the expulsion. Um, how closely were Moriscos scrutinized in their adherence to these criteria by the Catholic Church and, and the Crown? 
There were full legal processes for claims uh, of being an old Morisco, an old Christian Morisco, or a good Christian Morisco. And these could include petitioning, litigation, and as I mentioned, the presentation of witnesses and, and their testimony. I also don't want to underestimate the question of perceptions of religious identity um, and kind of act like it's all just about uh, legal status. Despite their diversity, all Moriscos were suspected of maintaining religious and political allegiances to Islam. Um, generally, royal, ecclesiastical, and popular opinions held that all Moriscos were potentially secret Muslims. The conversion envisioned and expected by church and state institutions was really multidimensional. It required religious sincerity, but also comprehensive social and cultural assimilation. A lot about how they lived their day-to-day -day lives mattered and was subject to the Spanish Inquisition's attention. So anything to do with the Arabic language was suspicious and eventually prohibited. Moriscos were accused of practicing Islam if they were not seen publicly eating pork and drinking wine, as these were signs that they may have been adhering to Muslim dietary laws restricting these things. Um, their dress, bathing, music, the way they named their children, all of these things could provoke mistrust. And in addition to inquisitorial investigation into the Catholic sincerity of the Moriscos, the Spanish church and state scrutinized the social structures and the closed ties of community and kinship among Moriscos. Um, local and royal levels of government implemented assimilationist policies to enforce their integration. Um, these could be rules regarding their places of residence, the kinds of taxes they paid, their freedoms to travel and relocate, and of course, decisions regarding their children and their property. So for the Moriscos, this whole situation, this conversion problem, was really a double bind. Church and state demanded their full assim assimilation, and yet really did not accept new Christians within the body politic of Spanish Catholic society. So to what extent does your work um, challenge uh, traditional narratives of Moriscos in early modern Spain? My research to date is focused on the legal agency and action of the Moriscos themselves. My book focuses on two groups living in the Castilian city of Valladolid and its surrounding district. And those groups were the Castilian Moriscos native to that region. And then, of course, the Granadan Moriscos resettled there after 1570. So within this work, I analyze a series of encounters between the Moriscos and church and state institutions in the city of Valladolid. And I demonstrate how Moriscos responded to religious prosecution and to assimilationist policies with both legal action and with noncompliance. So through litigation and petitioning, they could aim to protect their property, to determine their places of residence, um, defend their communities and privileges. They also aim to preserve pre-conversion social structures and to secure exemptions from deportation, of course, and the associated prohibitions. These encounters reveal that the identification of the Moriscos was a process of negotiation in which they themselves took part. This is also in many ways a local study, um, and I aim to kind of build upon historical scholarship, emphasizing the heterogeneity of Morisco populations and to show the diversity of local dynamics across the Iberian Peninsula. Um, I think a lot of this has been best captured by local and regional studies. Um, just to name a few examples, uh, on Avila, we have the work of Serafín de Tapia Sánchez. Um, for Aragon, the work of Mary Halloway. Trevor Dodson has worked on the Campo de Calatrava. Um, for Seville, there's some fantastic research by Manuel E. Fernández and Rafael M. Perez Garcia, and Patrick O'Banion has some recent work on DESA. Um, so these kinds of studies really can show us the differences between um, um, local contexts. I would say that my critical intervention in Morisco historiography is my focus on the textual record that Moriscos generated through their legal action. So ultimately, this approach allows me to challenge the traditional narrative of the marginalization of the Moriscos. 
we see that they endured a lot of prosecution and prohibitions um, as suspected heretics and dissidents. And yet within these documents, we see a tale of significant economic industry, civic integration, and then of course, legal agility. I don't in any way deny or downplay the severity of the prosecution they faced to the violence and exile that they endured, um, but I do seek to include the, their own voices and actions within their history of their encounters with church and state. And what kind of sources have you used to examine these? I use an extensive range of primary source materials from archival collections in Spain. Um, I've worked at the National Historical Archive of Spain, the General Archive of Simancas, which is a fantastic royal archive in a castle, so it's very lucky to get to work there, um, and the National Library of Spain. Um, I also worked in a number of local collections because I wanted to really focus on the city and region of Valladolid, so the um, collections at the municipal and provincial archives, um, as well as the archive of the Royal Chancery Court of Valladolid. And my sources themselves are really diverse, and purposefully so. I wanted to include but also move beyond just Inquisition and church records, upon which many histories of religious minorities rely. In addition to these, I use court records, leases, petitions and claims, um, tax settlements, licenses, passports, and charters of old Christian status, and and also letters of manumission. So the majority of these kinds of records, the the records in this legal genre, were penned by notaries and and lawyers, but they were engendered by moriscos in their legal proceedings, either individually or collectively. In some cases, the documents generated by Morisco legal action functioned as identity papers, stating who the Morisco individuals or communities were and to which privileges they were entitled. I think it's vital to realize the materiality and the legal power of the documents themselves. They could certify status, endow privilege, guarantee access or exemption. And once issued, these documents were the very tools that Moriscos wield in their negotiations with authorities. Um, I'm also writing an article at the moment, about the physical use and judicial authority of identity papers to transform or contest legal status in 16th century Spain. To what extent did Moriscos defend themselves, or were indeed able to defend themselves, from these kinds of intrusions? I make the argument throughout my work that formal petitioning and litigating were tactics for surviving in an inquisitorial society. Of course, Moriscos were subject to inquisitorial investigation and prosecution. They were registered and surveilled. Um, And there were many prohibitions, in some cases, on their mobility and on carrying weapons. Of course, ultimately, there were these deportations, a host of policies that aimed to control and assimilate them. But in many instances between 1502, their conversion and the final expulsion ending in 1614, the Moriscos were able to defend themselves, their families, um, privileges and properties. They were often able to obtain due process and in many cases to negotiate their status. So just for a few examples, um, The Castilian um, Moriscos of Valladolid defended their community through collective opposition to dismantling their neighborhood um, in terms of litigating for new leases when they had been ordered to leave, Um, also to the confiscation of their property and to the prosecution and imprisonment of their kin and neighbors by the Inquisition. Moriscos there were able to mitigate inquisitorial prosecution by petitioning the king for edicts of grace and to negotiate with the Inquisition an annual monetary tribute um, in order to protect their property from confiscation. This was called the situado. A few further examples. In the aftermath of the Second War of the Alpujarras, later in the 16th century, many Granadan Moriscos subverted and challenged prohibitions on their mobility. Those with the grounds to do so took legal action. Um, Granada and Morisco merchants and carters requested passports so that they could travel for trade. Others solicited licenses to relocate in the hopes of reuniting with relatives who could support them. 
The Crown also received a great number of these petitions for exemption from Moriscos who claimed to have inherited, again, old Christian titles and privileges. And these fascinating cases really reveal the complexity of how to calculate or verify ancestry. Can we talk about the legal status of Moriscos now? Um, how did this change revolve throughout the 16th century? Um, do we see significant changes in legal policies with the emergence of monarchs such as uh, Charles V and, and then Philip II? Yes, we certainly see inquisitorial scrutiny and prohibitive policies increase during the course of the 16th century. Um, not so much always at the moment of a new royal administration, but certainly with political instability, um, chiefly the revolt of the Granadan Moriscos and the policies implemented to control Granadan deportees resettled in Castile. There was absolutely an accompanying shift from hope and optimism in the conversion project to dismay and pessimism when it appeared that subsequent generations of Moriscos did not, in fact, on a large scale, become active, zealous Catholics. So over the latter half of the 16th century, belief in the possibility of Morisco assimilation was overtaken by a cynical focus on Morisco nonconformism, leading right up to the decision to implement their final expulsion. And I noticed a final shift um, in policy in the way that the Crown dealt with Morisco's status claims during the final expulsion um, ordered by King Philip III. In order to finally complete that expulsion, the King and his Council of State eventually had to refuse most requests for exemptions based on these special categories of lineage, regional identity, or even evidence of assimilation um, and, and Catholic piety. These categories of identity upon which negotiations had been predicated for a century. So we see the outbreak of another rebellion by Moriscos in 1568, um, and this has come to be known as the Second War of the Alpujarras. Um, what was the source of this conflict? Well, in 1567, King Philip II reissued a royal edict, and it strongly enforced bans on the Arabic language and on Islamic Granadan dress and customs. These bans really were an assault on the culture of the Moriscos of Granada. Um, it was met with protests. The protests against this edict began in the Albaicin, the predominantly Morisco district of the city of Granada, and quickly spread throughout the kingdom. The Albaicin and the Alpujarras mountain range became rebel strongholds, and the king responded with military action. The resulting confrontation is known as the Second Granadan War, or the Second War of the Alpujarras, as you mentioned, fought between 1568 and 1570. The king's army was led by his half-brother, Don Juan de Austria, and they succeeded in, in suppressing the rebellion. So as a result, beginning in 1569, an estimated 80,000 Moriscos were deported from the Kingdom of Granada in the south, marched northward, and resettled throughout the territories of the Crown of Castile. There were two central reasons for the deportation, one political and one religious. The first was to remo remove Moriscos from proximity to the Mediterranean. There was a fear that they could constitute this dangerous fifth column, in the words of the historian Andrew Hess, um, a fifth column of allies to the enemy Ottoman Empire. The other aim was their conversion, to finally assimilate the Moriscos into Catholic society by splitting up these dense Morisco populations in the south and settling them in central and northern Spain, um, where it was hoped, believed, thought that they could be amalgamated into old Christian communities. So the deportation of the Moriscos of Granada was really a consequence both of their rebellion against the crown, but also of the fact that they were perceived to be incommensurate with the old Christian culture and society. Can you tell us then about the process of determining um, the legality and the morality of enslaving uh, Morisco prisoners of war during and after this conflict? Um, considering the fact that Moriscos were considered to be Christian, uh, in theory at least, um, how was their enslavement actually justified? 
The enslavement uh, was debated during the war with legal scholars and theologians weighing in on whether this was legal and or moral. Um, legal and military tradition already permitted capturing non-Christian enemies during wartime. And it had been legal in the medieval Christian Iberian kingdoms to enslave Muslims from neighboring states. The problem, quite clearly, is that Moriscos were baptized Catholics. So the decision to ultimately allow the enslavement of Granada and Moriscos was presented as a consequence of their revolt. Because they had rebelled against the monarchy, uh, they were no longer, it was thought, under the legal protection customarily enjoyed by royal subjects. But clearly, the perception of the Moriscos as loyal to Islam played a huge role in this decision. Um, using the example of the Netherlands, the historian Aurelia Martín Cáceres points out that others who rebelled against the Spanish monarchy in this era were not necessarily enslaved. She argues that the difference in this case was the anxiety surrounding the religious sincerity of the Moriscos, and I have to agree with her. Um, the 16th century chronicler, Luis de Marmol Carvajal, uh, he wrote that the Moriscos of Granada appealed to Muhammad and declared themselves Muslims. Uh, we see Morisco rebels and their leaders doing so quite openly. Um, secular and ecclesiastical authorities also believed that the Morisco population in general was not truly sincerely Catholic. And this is an important factor in understanding why the Moriscos were deemed, um, as a whole, enemies ganados de buena guerra, captured in a just war. This conclusion is really a significant indicator of the monarchy's perception of the Moriscos as a serious threat to both the political and spiritual order of the Spanish kingdoms. So um, in your article, uh, Litigating for Liberty, which we mentioned at the beginning, um, you note that Morisco children uh, were considered by ecclesiastical authorities to be complicit in the rebellion of their parents. Um, how was this conclusion reached? So my understanding of this element of the debate is also from the work of Martin Cáceres. She located at the Archivo de la Catedral in Granada a document um, with this lengthy title, The question is whether Morisco men and women and their children can be made captives even when they have been baptized for rebelling against the gospel and against the king. So Martin Cáceres finds that the Council of Ecclesiastical Authorities uh, consulted by the king um, considered Morisco children eventually after debate to be complicit in the rebellion of their parents. And they were the ones who argue that this enslavement could be considered legal. But the Spanish court seems to have disagreed with this, right? Yes, exactly. So ultimately, Philip II issued a law that made the enslavement of Morisco minors illegal. This law was issued on July 30th, 1572, and it banned Morisco children from being captured or kept as slaves. The argument I make in my article is that Philip II authorized and facilitated the liberation of these enslaved minors because the overarching royal plan in granting them their freedom was to turn the children of Morisco rebels into proper Christian vassals. The larger project of Morisco conversion had already recognized the importance of the malleability of children. Schools had been found to teach Morisco children in cities like Granada and Valencia, Priests and inquisitors in many places aim to enforce the proper education and socialization of Morisco children as well. So the surveillance and the control of liberated Morisco children became even more consequential in the context of this massive post-war resettlement of deportees throughout Cristal. Okay. Can you tell us about the laws then regarding the enslavement of Morisco children? What was the purpose of this and to what extent was it actually illegal? So this law was actively enforced by the monarchy through courts of law and with the um, assistance of royal representatives, including judges, chief magistrates, administrators, and publicly appointed procurators as well. I wouldn't claim that it freed every enslaved child, of course, but many of these cases did come before the courts, um, and there were Morisco youth who were liberated in accordance with, with the king's law. 
Now, this law applied only to Morisco children who were minors at the time of their capture. Legal minority was a relative concept. Um, and in this case, it was defined as boys under the age of 10 and a half and girls who were under the age of nine and a half. The function of the law was twofold. On the one hand, the law granted legal freedom to children illegally uh, enslaved. But on the other hand, that freedom was limited. Um, within the law itself, the king states, and I have a quote here, because our wish is that they be better instructed and taught and raised in Christianity. The word here is cristianamente criados. They may not stay or be in the power of their parents. We order that the justices place them with good ecclesiastical people or secular people who will raise and teach them. They will serve these people until they reach the age of 20 years old, after which they will be and remain free as the rest of the moriscos who were not taken prisoner, end quote. So this law was intended as a mechanism for bringing Morisco children into Catholic society to keep them separated from their families while they were educated and assimilated as Christians. To what extent did the legal records available reveal the emotional impact or the trauma of the separation of these children from their parents? Yeah, this is a tough one. It is reasonable and very terrible to imagine the horrors of what these families endured um, between the war, captivity, deportation and separation. I think a lot about what we now know about trauma and the long term psychological effects of separating children from their parents and also of detention. Um, the stories that are on record wherein people do find each other, the people who go through the legal system and prevail at such great distance and cost are actually kind of incredible. Um, going through the records related to the captivity of these children, the trauma of separation from their families is always at least between the lines, I find, but not normally the primary explicit focus of the more formulaic legal records that I find in the archives. Um, what often is evident in, in lawsuits is the violence and hostility of slave owners. Um, it's evident in some of the trial records that I found, and it also very easily could have limited the ability of some of these slaves to pursue litigation. So I have one case in which the court recognized on more than one occasion the torture and confinement endured by an enslaved young Morisco man. And then I would say that in assessing the abuse per perpetrated by slave owners, it's really important to remember that the majority of enslaved Granada Moriscos were girls and women, and many were subject to physical and sexual violence during the war um, and before and after enslavement. And to what extent was the ban on enslaving Morisco children observed? I'd say that it was very often not observed, as many children were captured and enslaved um, and then kept as slaves despite this law. Um, and so as a result, we have this significant, not complete, but significant legal paper trail um, evidencing the litigation that ensued when certain Morisco youth and their relatives could actively pursue their liberation. Um, we also have as sources rural reports and correspondence and some census records to illustrate the enslavement of these children, many, many children. Are you highlight... Um, some shocking circumstances of um, Morisco children captured in battle and kidnapped in spite of surrendering. Um, can you give our listeners some examples of these and what kinds of numbers uh, are we actually talking about? Yes, I often find descriptions of capture and enslavement um, in different kinds of documents in battlefield reports submitted to the king and then also within the lawsuits themselves. Um, for one example, a battlefield report from 1570 describes military encounters between royal troops and Morisco rebels near Galera. And in that instance, royal soldiers captured and enslaved an estimated 400 Moriscos who surrendered after a comparable number were killed. Don Juan de Austria, who, as I've mentioned, was in charge of the king's army, felt that it was cruel to kill women and children on the field of battle. So he instructed his soldiers to take them as prisoners. And as I've mentioned, overall, Morisca women and girls were captured, sold and kept as slaves in higher numbers than, than men and boys. 
We know from descriptions of capture recorded in lawsuits that some Morisco children were captured, um, kidnapped essentially, outside of combat zones. So, for example, um, a young Morisco girl named Inés de la Drote was abducted during the war, even though her father, Andrés de la Drote, was the leader of a troop that fought to suppress the rebels. So, protect his family, um, he had moved his wife and children to Guarish, which was supposedly a safe place. In the record, it's called the Lugar de Paz. And there, um, Christian soldiers kidnapped and enslaved his little girl, Inez. We can't know exactly how many were enslaved, of course, because of the inconsistent nature of the documentary record that, that survives. Um, however, Aurelia Martin Cáceres, who, as I've mentioned, has done extensive work on Morisco slavery, um, estimates that approximately 800 children at least were sold into slavery as the result of the Grenadine War. The number was high enough, at least, to earn the attention of the monarchy and to take up time in the courts. It was observed by contemporaries as well. Um, in 1574, the president of the Royal Chancery Court of Granada wrote, and I have a quote here, um, here we have a reports that in Osuna and in other signorial towns, there are many young boys, natives of this kingdom, who are branded on the face as slaves without being of the age to be slaves. They have no one to petition for justice on their behalf, nor to seek satisfaction from the ordinary justices. So... Enslavement of Moriscos, then, it seems to have continued uh, far beyond the Second War of the Alpujarras, as, as you note. Um, now, considering the fact that slavery was a central feature of Spanish society in Iberia and in America, um, do we have any idea of what percentage of total slaves were Moriscos towards the end of the 16th century? Right. I'm not exactly sure exactly what percentage of enslaved people living in Spain were Moriscos, but we see a rise in the overall enslaved population of many places throughout the Spanish kingdoms beginning around 1570 as a result of the capture of Moriscos during the Second Granadan War. And then this increase was quickly followed by another rise in the overall enslaved population when Spain annexed Portugal in 1580. This brought a great number of enslaved sub-Saharan African peoples into Spain. And in the early modern era, numbers of enslaved people really varied greatly by region. So the largest concentrations of enslaved people were in the southern and eastern kingdoms, notably in Andalusia and Murcia, followed by Catalonia and Valencia. Um, Seville, for example, was second only to Lisbon for the largest number of slaves on the peninsula. And what kind of work were they engaged in? This depended on where they lived and who owned them. So the king had slaves, mostly Turks and North Africans, captured in the war and put to hard labor, for example, um, galley service. Uh, nobles, officials, and even middling sorts in many trades and occupations also owned slaves, who often then served as domestic laborer or field laborers. Historical scholarship on slavery distinguishes between societies with slaves and slave societies. The pre-modern Spain was a society with slaves. The Spanish Empire was also responsible for the establishment of slave societies. So slave societies were those with larger enslaved populations and economies dependent on slave labor, such as in Brazil, the Caribbean, and the American South. Uh, in the early 16th century, um, Spain instigated the encomienda system in America, that is a division of labour uh, of Native Americans among uh, Spanish settlers. Is there any evidence that Sp the Spanish experience with the encomienda system in, in America informed their approach to similar systems of forced labour uh, among uh, of moriscos? Yes. And in fact, the system of placing liberated Morisco youth into old Christian custody is actually referred to as encomienda in some of the documents. The word encomendar in this case means to entrust someone to take care of someone or something. William D. Phillips Jr. makes this connection between the arrangement of, uh, with Morisco youth and that in the Spanish-American colonies in his 2013 book, Slavery in Medieval and Early Modern Iberia. And he writes that the system resembled both older contracts of apprenticeship and the encomienda system in New Spain. 
and in New Spain, of course, and I believe in the Philippines as well. Um, Encomienda was a colonial institution wherein Spanish settlers called encomenderos were allocated uh, the labor of indigenous workers. And this form of tribute was an exploitative system that did great violence to indigenous peoples. Likewise, there was considerable financial and social value in keeping young moriscos as domestic workers in old Christian households. So I argue that both their captivity, but also their post-slavery service were intended as forms of social discipline. As we know, uh, there were extensive debates in Valladolid in the 1540s regarding the legality and morality of enslaving American natives. And the Dominican friar uh, Bartolomé de las Casas uh, emerge as a prominent voice uh, in support of native rights. Um, were there any such voices speaking out in defense of the rights of moriscos? Well, I don't find many. And of course, I'm still searching. I'm still looking. Uh, I would be very glad to hear from anyone who has examples of this. There certainly was no single opinion on the moriscos or on how to treat them. Government and religious officials debated the morisco question throughout the century, as I've mentioned. And then even the ultimate expulsion of the moriscos from the Spanish kingdoms um, was not an indisputed decision. We can also find, interestingly, expressions of sympathy and even pity from old Christians for the treatment of moriscos that they witnessed. Um, so, for example... Uh, Mary Elizabeth Perry opened the first chapter of her book, The Handless Maiden, Moriscos and the Politics of Religion in Early Modern Spain, with an account of the arrival of thousands of Granadan Morisco deportees to the city of Seville in 1570. And in her description, she relates the words of a man, the Count of Priego, who felt such great compassion for their suffering. And he described the arriving deportees, and I quote, as so shattered and poor and robbed and ill. But otherwise, I actually look to the dissenting voices of the moriscos themselves. So their petitions and litigating contain requests for mercy and assistance. Um, they're continually asking for exemption and protection. In terms of large-scale public defenses of the moriscos and their culture, I would encourage listeners to read about Francisco Núñez Moulet. He was a Granadan Morisco elder who famously disassociated Morisco cultural practices from Islamic faith in his 1567 memorandum, which he wrote in opposition to King Philip II's 1567 royal edict that banned the Arabic language and Morisco dressing customs. The memorandum has been translated into English by Vincent Barletta. Nunez Moulet argues that the Arabic language and Morisco traditions were not inherently at odds with the Catholic faith and that Christianity was not coextensive with Castilian culture. It was his opinion that Granada and Moriscos could live as Christian subjects while retaining their language, baths, dress, diet, and other customs that they had practiced for centuries. And of course, he's not successful in changing the opinion of the king. Um, the 1567 edict was a central cause of the second Granada and Morisco revolt. Um, and there were a number of ways Moriscos, including children, could obtain their freedom, right? Right. Well, first, I suppose that slave owners could choose to comply with a law against keeping enslaved Morisco children. Um, but there's important reasons why I doubt that many did this willingly. To freely manumit an enslaved child would mean owing them wages as newly designated servants in their households. Um, also, slave owners had reasons to litigate against and to appeal the liberation of the Morisco children that they had purchased. The law stated that children who didn't know that their slaves had been captured illegally could actually get their money back from the original seller. So there were financial motivations for pursuing the return of slaves um, through the courts of appeal. At stake was the price of the slave, the value of the labor of the, that the slave provided, and the status conferred upon owners um, of slaves. Now, these lawsuits that I mentioned were the central way in which Moriscos enslaved as children could gain their freedom. This required securing legal representation and could include the assistance of Morisco family members if they could locate their children. There were some provisions made for legal assistance provided by the state for poor relief and underage litigants. 
The crux of the matter was that the enslavement of Morisco children was illegal, and so courts had to hear these cases when they managed to come before the judges. But only Granada and Moriscos captured as children had the legal grounds to challenge their enslavement on the basis of the king's 1572 law. Enslaved Morisco adults and youths who were older than 10, which is really still quite young, did not have this legal recourse to freedom. Some options were available to older Morisco captives, including formal manumission and ransom payments, but most did not benefit from these pathways to freedom. Um, now, can you tell us um, about the case of Juan and Lucas de Almudé? Uh, two enslaved Morisco children in the 1560s and 1570s that you talk about in your article. Uh, Juan and Lucas Almudé were these young Morisco brothers from the town of Jerez in the Kingdom of Granada. They were captured and enslaved in 1568, which is early in the Second War of the Alpujarras. And in 1571, the brothers were taken to the city of Valladolid as the slaves of a man named Don Juan de Menchaca. He was the sheriff of the royal chancery court there. Soon after their arrival, the king banned the capture and enslavement of Morisco minors, as we've discussed. And so in 1574, a court case was initiated in Valladolid with the aim of liberating the Almudé boys from slavery. And like so many other cases, their lawsuit began with the presentation of a petition brought before a royal magistrate. In this case, it was the Corregidor of Valladolid. And the petitioner in this case was their older brother, García de Almudé, who stated, and I, I have my translation of the original record here, um, among the Moriscos who were captured in the war were my brothers, Juan and Lucas, who lived in the town of Jerez, Marquesado de Senefe. And at that time, the said Juan was nine years old and the San Lucas was seven years old. At present, Señor Licenciado Menchaca holds and treats them as his slaves. In conformity with the orders of his majesty, because the said Juan and Lucas were younger than 10 years old at the time when they were captured in the war in Granada, they cannot and should not be slaves, but rather free men and not subject to servitude. I ask and plead that you declare the said Juan and Lucas to be free men and not subject to any servitude, and as free men that they may live and die in these kingdoms with all liberty. So this brother, García de Almudé, was not the only person to represent his young brothers in their lawsuit. These cases um, always included the work of legal representatives, such as lawyers and procurators for the poor. And in the city of Valladolid, many cases featured the representation of a man named Galaz Antolines de Burgos. I find him all throughout the records. He was a city councillor who filled this position um, called Defender of the Moriscos for at least 15 years. He had been put in charge of the registration of the deportees as they arrived and were resettled in this city and jurisdiction. Um, he was ordered to restrict them from leaving their assigned places of residence without express license. And the municipal council of the city of by the lead recognized the urgent need for his procuratorship over as well the enslaved Morisco children. Um, they wrote to defend and protect them in their lawsuits. So the verdict for the Almudé case was issued in 1574 and Lucas won his freedom as a result of this litigation. His older brother Juan did not and remained Menchaca's slave, most likely because they couldn't prove his legal minority at the age of capture. Um, the decision to liberate Lucas was then appealed Many of these lawsuits were judged on appeal at the Royal Chancery Court of Valladolid. And in this case, Lucas's freedom was confirmed by this High Court of Appeals two years later. Now, you also highlight uh, what I find to be a very disturbing case of a six-year-old child uh, named Ursula, uh, who was so small that, and I'm going to quote you here, she was carried in the arms of her captors during most of her journey to Madrid, where she was sold as a slave, unquote. Um, was it common to kidnap and enslave children so young? I believe it was. I find very young children described in some of these cases. Um, of course, ascertaining the exact age of the enslaved person was this crucial task of these lawsuits, as the slave-owning defendants always argued that the person they held enslaved was older than nine or ten and a half at the time of their capture. 
Proving the minority of enslaved youth was difficult um, because of the destruction of parish records during the Granadan Rebellion and War. And so the relatives and legal representatives of these captured moriscos always had to find ways to show how young they were. So the case you're referring to, um, yes, of this enslaved morisco girl named Ursula, who was likely five or six years old by the time she was captured in Granada. And yes, this was the um, evidence presented by her lawyer, explaining that she was so small she had to be carried in the arms of her captors, um, where she was first sold as a slave in Madrid. And the lawsuit references her being taken with other captured children, including her siblings, which is which is horrific. Um, and I have read other cases of children as young as three and four years old being slaves as well. Can you tell us about some of the cases where mothers um, litigated for the liberation of their children taken from them? Um, what kind of success did they have? Yes, and some of these are cases that refer to these very, very young children. Um, in one case, Maria Seron, she had two sons who were captured during the war, a six-year-old named Luis and a four-year-old named Francisco. And the boys became the slaves of a man named Gutierrez de Vargas. He was an infantry captain in the Granadan War. And then his mother, uh, Juana de Sotomayor, she was called. And they lived in the town of Tordesillas, not far from the city of Baidali. With the legal representation, again, of this man, Galas de Burgos, as well as a procurator named Gaspar de Valcazar, Maria won her son's liberty. Um, twice, actually. She had to fight for their freedom twice. First in a case brought before this corregidor or royal magistrate of Tordesillas, and then again at the Royal Chancery Court in Valladolid after the slave owners appealed the decision. The defense argued that the boys were captured in a just war, in Buena Guerra they were, and that they had cost their owners a lot of money in raising them. But um, their mother, Moria, and her procurator were able to prove that the boys were minors when they were enslaved, and so they won this case in December of 1573. In another case that took place between 1579 and 1580, a Morisca woman named Isabel Guzman litigated for the liberation of her children, Gaspard and Catalina, and they were only four and three years old, respectively, um, when they had been enslaved. I would say, too, that measuring the idea of success in these lawsuits is really complicated, and I thought about this a lot in trying to wrap up the article. The possibility of lawsuits and liberty for Granadan Moriscos who had been enslaved as children was absolutely real and yet really defied all odds. Um, countless enslaved youth were not liberated because of a lack of resources, representation, or the ability to prove one's age. Um, many also had to contend with the violence of slave owners, and still others may not have been found by relatives or procurators who could assist them. And then yet, in spite of all this, there were trials initiated, fought, and um, they could be won. So in those cases that did come before the courts, evidence of minority could secure legal freedom, this could take years, and enslaved youth could become um, these liberated servants once they were manumitted. So that success is really a legally accurate but complicated concept in these cases. So what became of Morisco children then who managed to obtain freedom? Were they actually allowed to return to their parents? We can't know what actually happened to each of the children who were liberated, but we know that they were not permitted to return to their parents. So as I mentioned, this was a legal but limited freedom. The king's orders required them to remain in the custody of their former masters in the capacity of servants until they reached this age of majority. Um, and again, majority was relative. So this second uh, level of majority was 20 years old in this case. Um, the policy restricting liberated Morisco minors from returning to their parents was enforced. There is evidence from across Castile that many priests took in Morisco children as slaves or as servants. Um, a high number of liberated Morisco youth stayed in custody, in um, the custody of old Christians in Seville and throughout Andalusia. I have found some examples of Morisco families who were able to stay together after slavery. So, in one case from Valladolid, for example, an enslaved Morisco woman was manumitted with the payment of a ransom, which was paid by um, two Morisco men. 
Her young daughter was enslaved in the same household as was she. Um, she was liberated with the assistance of the royally appointed prose prosecutor Galas de Burgos, this defender of the Moriscos. Um, the arrangement of the mother's manumission, however, makes clear that she was actually securing a release for herself and for, from, for her daughter from all service. Um, I found a really interesting census record from Vidalid in 1583, and that includes a list of freed Morisco slaves. It includes some liberated minors who did remain in the custody and service of their old Christian masters until they reached the age of majority. So this was all in keeping with the king's law and with the court sentencing. Um, the census shows that manumitted um, Morisco adults and liberated youth made largely their post-slavery lives with and among other Moriscos. So the census combined with examples of ransoming and litigation look like evidence of the eff efforts of Grad and Moriscos to reunite families and communities that had been separated by captivity and forced relocation. They would work very much within the scope of the law in pursuing the liberation of enslaved minors, but then they would often act against royal plans for the assimilation of ex-slaves into old Christian society. Now, you also talk about the branding of these children, that they were branded. Um, can you tell us about this branding and the implications of this for newly freed Morisco children? How did the branding uh, impact this? I really didn't know much about branding before I read these cases from my PhD research. I would find in a few documents, uh, you know, a, a reference to somebody being branded. Um, it was a common physical description of Morisco slaves' bodies in court cases, uh, bills of sale, letters of manumission, and then in, in the census records that I found. This refers to facial branding, uh, physical scarring, signifying enslavement, signifying ownership. It was often marked on the slave's cheek and forehead with a fire-hot branding iron. Uh, branding was, of course, a permanent visible mark of enslavement and then paired with Granada and provenance of Morisco lineage as well. I have many examples of this. In one, a man uh, named Vincente de Monforte, he was an enslaved Granada Morisco, sold in 1584 in the Castilian town of Medina del Campo. His bill of sale describes him physically. He was a tall man with a lean white face branded on his cheeks and forehead. Um, in the 1583 census record I mentioned, we have a description of Lucas de Almudé, the brother of Juan and Garcia, whose trial I mentioned earlier, um, who was freed. He was still living as a freed man in Vitalid, and he had branded marks on both cheeks. Different kinds of marks were used in branding. Uh, other historians have worked on this. The most common marks um, branded on the faces of slaves were an S on one cheek and a lowercase I on the other. Um, this could have been initials for signore or without rights. It could also have been shorthand for esclavo, a, a slave in Spanish, if you read the I as a small image of a nail or clavo in Castilian. And there are also cases on record of the slaves um, bearing the initials or even the full name of their owner branded on their face. So branding was clearly a physical sign of dominance over captives of war. Um, it was a bodily violation of enslaved children, the enslaved children of the defeated rebels. So like the fetters or irons some slaves were forced to wear, branding was an act of violence against the enslaved. It was a widespread practice um, that was recognized within the 1572 law ordering children to be freed. It ordered that those who maliciously captured, branded, and sold Morisco children must be punished according to the quality of their crime. Um, in terms of the implications, it's really difficult to know what the implications of branding were for liberated or manumitted Moriscos. Petitions in some trial records, however, include a request to remove the signs of slavery from persons granted legal freedom. And this could refer to shackles. Um, however, in some cases, this request clearly refers to the removal of marks branded on the faces of slaves. So, for example, in the petition um, 
for the case of Rafael Hernandez, it requested, and I quote, that he might have the irons and the signs on his face removed, end quote. And I thought about this a lot when I first read it. I believe it likely refers to a second application of a branding iron or scarring with a blade to basically remove the symbol of slavery or the detail of ownership. Even at the cost of additional physical pain, um, this act may have been preferable to bearing the name of a past owner. You could mar, of course, but not erase the the, the branding mark. Um, And perhaps that plus carrying one's letter of manumission or some kind of legal paper could have been a method for proving legal freedom. It's also possible that there was a level of popular recognition in manumitted uh, status of ex-slaves who were twice marked. Um, It's conceivable that marring a branded mark could function as a psychological assurance of the permanence of freedom. Um, Now, from (laughs) what we've heard just now, we've only heard a small sample, I'm sure, Um, You've clearly encountered some very difficult cases in tackling this subject. And um, as we know only too well, uh, these issues of enslavement, uh, family separation, child abuse, violence, racism, murder. um, These are issues that are clearly not confined to the early modern period or to Iberian history. Um, These are issues that occur in all periods of history, in all places. Um, They occur in wartime, they occur in peacetime, they happen in distant lands. They happen locally. Um, I suppose the most obvious parallel to make is the horror uncovered by historians investigating uh, things like the Holocaust. Um, but our own country here, Ireland, that is, is, is actually still coming to terms that it's shameful past also of the abuse and mistreatment of, of women and children at the hands of the government and religious orders who often worked in uh, collusion. Um, and just, just to give you one example out of many, um, a local historian by the name of Catherine Corliss um, uncovered a grave some year, uncovered evidence some years ago of a, a mass grave at the Bon Secours uh, mother and baby home in uh, Tume in County Galway, which is in the west of Ireland. And this was a maternity home for unmarried mothers that was that operated between 1925 and 1961, but was one of just one of many uh, of these these homes. And these mother and baby homes were kind of religious institutions where unmarried uh, mothers would be sequestered away to kind of hide the shame and kind of maintain the respectability of middle-class Ireland. Um, and this the, this home in particular was run by the Bon Secours sisters. And it entails all the stories uh, that we've all become familiar with of abuse, uh, humiliation, mistreatment, as well as a separation of mothers from their children. Um, and of course, uh, like in your case, the trafficking of children but in this case, uh, children who were taken forcibly from their mothers and sold for adoption in places like the United States. And I don't want to delve too deeply into this because it's not my area and I'm I'm fearful of making errors. Um, but this this historian, Catherine Corliss, uh, she found this mass grave on the grounds of the, of the Bon Secours home and that it contained the bodies of uh, what she estimates to be almost 800 babies and toddlers most of whom had died from congenital debilities, uh, infectious diseases and malnutrition. And they were buried in an unmarked grave, which appears to have been a septic tank. And in addition to all of our national feelings of revulsion and rage and sorrow and and powerlessness, um, I was overcome and I'm sure everybody else was overcome with, on the other hand, with feelings of admiration and wonder at Catherine Corliss's ability to tell this story objectively, in spite of the horror that she clearly felt at uncovering these kinds of details. So I suppose I'm, I'm choosing this national example 
um, to highlight the difficulty of coming to terms with historical trauma because it seems so, well, it seems so personal to me, obviously, to us here in Ireland and because it's still essentially an, an open wound. Um, but cases like this uh, should give us pause um, no matter what period of history we cover because it reveals to, what the, it reveals to us that the, the traumas of the past live with us um, and they can repeat themselves with uh, frightening regularity. Um, and I don't want to put words into your mouth, but I'm sure it's something that you're keenly aware of as an early modern historian, that these horrors are not confined to one place or to one time. So on a personal note, then, um, how do you as a historian um, try to make sense of or to deal with some of the harrowing details that you've uncovered in these cases? Because I imagine you've sifted through countless uh, stories like this. Do we try to maintain a distance um, from these uh, these cases, from these manuscripts, or is it important for us to engage emotionally with them, no matter how uh, difficult they might be? As historians, we're trained to maintain a distance in some really important ways. So, for example, in thinking critically about our own point of view um, of our current era's relationship with the past uh, and in keeping awareness of the particular historical context of the things that we study. And we use historical distance to think about the genealogy of ideas that inform our understandings of the places and eras and themes that we study. So being mindful of historical distance is helpful when we have to consider just what we have left to study, what documents and objects and other remembrances have survived and how and why, what has been lost, forgotten or erased in the span of that historical distance. But at the same time, personally, I can't help but have emotional reactions to these things, the things I read in the archives or in the news and the work of other historians, and um, and also an emotional reaction to the process of telling that story. I think that's a very human thing to relate to other people's stories and experiences. Um, I think that there's a certain amount of sadness, but also privilege in getting to do the work of bringing some of these stories and experiences to a wider audience. Um, so I would say... I don't put my own opinions or emotions at the forefront of the things I write because of the genre of the research we're doing, but I absolutely feel and think of a wide range of things while I'm working on them. And your question kind of makes me think about that experience of being in the archive. It's one of my favorite parts of what we get to do as historians of actually doing archival research. And it's a very tactile and emotionally engaging thing to do. You have these long stretches of searching and dust and waiting and, and wondering, um, but sometimes punctuated with these really thrilling finds. And then sometimes with these gut punches, when you find these absolutely upsetting documents. And I, I felt this with this stuff about enslaved children and also with reading, you know, inquisition trials, for example, um, Reading about children, enslaved children, is especially heart-wrenching. It's not always, um, we're not always able to know what happened at the outcome of each trial, which can be really agonizing. Um, and I feel that on a day-to-day -day basis, the stories absolutely stay, stay with you throughout the day. So I think this brings us naturally into my next question, and it's also my last question. Um, now, I should note um, that we're recording this on the 21st of June, 2018, um, and we're currently witnessing a humanitarian crisis unfolding on the US-Mexico border where families from Central America um, who are seeking asylum legally are being broken up by US authorities and interned in, well, let's be honest, uh, internment camps. Um, so we're seeing horrifying images um, of terrified, crying children uh, being removed forcibly from their parents and caged separately from them, not knowing when or if they will ever see their parents again. And in some cases, uh, the authorities have admitted 
uh, these children may never see their parents again. Um, and reading your work, um, I was struck uh, by some of the parallels between the cases you outline and what's currently happening in the US in terms of some of the language used, um, the attempts to dehumanize these victims as a means of justifying their separation and internment, um, as well as the complicity of locals. Um, would you care to comment on this? Absolutely. Um, the latest figure I've seen in the news, it seems to be always kind of changing and everything's moving quite quickly, but is it, that is in the past months, the American Department of Homeland Security has separated over 2,000 children from their families, if that's correct. We know that these children, including toddlers and some babies, are being kept in cages and in what they're calling tender age facilities. Uh, the press has limited access to the facilities where they're being kept and their parents are not aware of their whereabouts in most cases. There's, as you mentioned, no clear system for how they will be reunited. Um, I know that uh, Trump has just signed some measure of reversal, as they're calling it. It looks like his administration is committed to detaining families together, which is, I don't, I don't know how to measure that. It's still a horrific thought. Um, what we know is that there's currently no plan for how at least to reunite the children taken from their parents so far. You're right about the similarities. Um, the language used by President Trump has been described as dehumanizing. So, for example, on June 19th, he tweeted that the Democrats, and I quote, don't care about crime and want illegal immigrants, no matter how bad they may be, to pour into and infest our country like MS-13, end quote. Um, this is just one of, I mean, take your pick. There's so many horrific things that he said. Um, just one example of how his hateful rhetoric equates immigrants and foreigners, notably people of color, with criminals and posits non-citizens as a threat to America. And he and his administration lie outright on a daily basis about the separation and the internment of these families, as you've mentioned, most of whom have arrived to, uh, here in, in the United States legally to, uh, to seek asylum. The language used during and after the Second War of the Al-Bukharas and throughout the late 16th century, um, also in justifying the final expulsion of the Moriscos in the early 17th century, will absolutely seem familiar to anyone who is watching and reading the news today. Um, so despite a lack of substantial evidence, Moriscos were accused of being politically disloyal and a danger to the state. Um, though Moriscos had many religious and regional identities, they were collectively suspected of both religious heresy um, and accused of social and cultural nonconformity, of not fitting in. Um, Moriscos were accused of criminality constantly and were subject to surveillance, restricted resettlement, weapons bans and prohibitions not applied to the rest of the general population. And among some supporters of that final expulsion in the early 17th century, there was also a fear that any Moriscos allowed to remain would soon take over Spain. I found a Council of State report from the year 1611 written in support of the expulsion, which state, uh, stated, and I quote, What reason is there to conserve the seed of such fierce and cruel enemies? For each house of them that remains in Spain, in 50 years there will be 100 houses of Muslims who will communicate with those in the Barbary and Turkey and France, always seeming to harm, seeking to harm Christianity, end quote. And so for these kinds of reasons, the official verdict of the expulsion relied on arguments that the Moriscos were inherently at odds with and a danger to contemporary Catholic Spanish society and its values. The question of Morisco children was important even beyond this question of slavery that we've been discussing. Uh, during the final expulsion, some hope for the salvation of Morisco children endured, but it was contingent on their separation from their families and their communities. 
Uh, I've got a report written by a Spanish bishop in 1610, I'm using it for another article right now, in which he states that the, the adults, the Morisco adults had, and I quote, no desire to be Christians, and he declared they will always be Muslims, siempre serán moros. Uh, he continued, there's a great danger that they not teach the sect of Muhammad to the youth who remain among us. It is a great impediment to these children becoming true Christians that there is someone to teach them the sect of Muhammad to which they are inclined because of their bloodline of their parents. End quote. So religious and racialized prejudice directed at the parents justified the removal of their children. Um, while there was no single popular old Christian point of view, enough old cr Christians clearly believed these ideas and were, as you say, complicit in the deportation and enslavement of Moriscos and of their children. Um, so obviously it's not the exact situation that we're witnessing today, but what I'm interested in is using my research on histories, early modern histories of conversion and converts to examine the formation of our modern ideas about religious and racialized difference, um, about citizenship and nationhood. And these are all, as we know, human constructs that are intimately linked to power and they remain core concepts in contemporary society. I think the scholars of the early modern era can contribute to discussions of current events in really unique ways. Um, and this is happening um, more and more in public places, but also in our professional gatherings. At the meeting of the American Historical Association in DC this past January, I took part in a roundtable a discussion that was reflecting on Renaissance refugees and forced migrations in the era of the Muslim ban, as we are now. Um, and last September at the Newberry Library in Chicago, myself and other participants in the Politics of Conversion Conference brought pre-modern and contemporary studies into conversation on a range of topics. Um, at that point, I spoke about how the, in the United States, debates over citizenship and deportation have been ignited over Trump's rescinding of DACA, or the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals Immigration Policy that was instituted in 2012 under President Obama. And the future of these dreamers across the USA confronts us yet again with this question of under what conditions will groups of people be fully accepted as fellow citizens. So as in other examples of deportation, this is a rejection of pluralism. Um, in this case, an anti-immigrant stance informed by white nationalism framed as a, in scare quotes, taking back of our country, um, hearkening this fictitious, homogenous white Christian past. To me, reading this as a, as a historian, this is basically Reconquista propaganda. Uh, DACA is clearly not an isolated issue. Religious, racial, and cultural pluralism have become the central divisive elements in countries such as the US and Canada and in the UK, where debates rage over citizenship and immigration and racism and Islamophobia. I have seen in, in terms of like public uh, tone, this really important pushback, especially um, watching on social media conversations and on Twitter, against this shock that many people express, predominantly people who are white and from more privileged backgrounds, this shock in the face of atrocities like the separation of children from their parents. And it's that insistence that this is not us or this is not America that draws really legitimate criticism because historical and contemporary uh, current evidence makes it quite clear that the United States, Canada, and many other powerful nations are built on violent colonial foundations. Separating children from their parents is exactly what has happened in our countries over and over again, most always to indigenous peoples and people of color under systems of slavery, residential schools, Japanese internment camps, and mass, incarcer mass incarceration that disproportionately targets non-white communities. Um, I'm glad you brought up an example from Ireland, and I can I could do the same with many examples from Canada. Here in Canada, we have, among other things, the shameful legacy of the 60s scoop, which was the forceful, large-scale removal of Indigenous children from their families by the Canadian government in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s, um, and their placement in non-Indigenous homes. 
The number of First Nation, Inuit, and Métis children taken from their families is estimated to be over 20,000. Uh, and the first settlement in the, ad- the adoptees class action lawsuit was reached um, in 2017. So we could go on and on, but I think that the point is that these are not simply things of the past, and in fact, they are ongoing. Um, to bring it back in conclusion to the focus of my work, I would emphasize that the history of the Moriscos in early modern Spain is really only uh, one of many historical examples of how social belonging in our modern world is built on these long-standing and prejudiced conceptions of religious and racialized difference. European religious intolerance and Iberian-born concepts of status and purity were central in colonial hierarchies in the Spanish Empire. Um, They became the bedrock of colonialism and slavery in the Atlantic world, and they continue to underpin systematic inequality today. So it can feel very hopeless and distressing to learn about these things, but I believe that a critical awareness of the many genealogies behind these prejudices will be necessary in dismantling them. Dr. Stephanie Kavanagh, thank you very much. Thank you.